Good morning, church. It is a blessing and a great joy to be with you this morning. My wife Bailey and I have been coming here since June of 2020. Um, let's hear God's word from 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves us has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, uh, first thing I'm going to do is something you should never do when you're a guest speaker is rearrange the stage. The second thing I'm going to do when you should never do when you're a guest speaker is... Uh, well, maybe you should. I, you know, I, I changed my scripture passage a few weeks ago. <laughs> and some people got the message and some people obviously didn't. So that is a wonderful passage of scripture. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe at some time, you know, if Dave would have me back, we'll talk about that one. But we're going to actually be talking about something else this morning. So uh, anyway, it's, it's good to be here with you this morning. My name is Tom Swanson. I thought I'd just give you a little introduction to me, not that uh, I'm that important or anything, but uh, it's, it's going to relate to the part of the message a little bit. Uh, I grew up in Nebraska. Both my wife and I grew up in Nebraska, uh, which is the state that you drive through if you want to get to Colorado, right? You know where that's at. Um, I, after I graduated from the University of Nebraska, I had a short career of teaching high school history and then decided the Lord was leading me in some other direction. I went to seminary. After seminary, uh, my wife and I spent uh, a little over 10 years living in Belgium, uh, involved in a church planting uh, ministry over there. I came back from that. Uh, I was at Eureka Bible Church here in town, just uh, a little bit over that way. Uh, I was there for 20 years as their lead pastor, and then retired in 2016 from that and started doing interim ministry. So uh, we would go and help churches that were in transition, generally because somebody was retiring, uh, a longtime senior pastor. So we were in Virginia for a year and North Dakota for two winters, um, about uh, 20 months, and then I did a couple of interims here locally as well. Um, over the years, uh, the time that I was a pastor here in, uh, in Eureka, I got to know Dave, and uh, I, I would consider Dave a, a good friend. I, I think he looks at me as an older friend, perhaps, but... Uh, we had a lot of cups of coffee together. I had a lot of cups of coffee. Dave had whatever Dave drinks, uh, but not coffee, at least when he was around me. So uh, I feel 
connected to a lot of you. Some of you are familiar faces. And I've always uh, been so thankful to God for what he's doing here through Crosspoint. When I was a teacher, um, and I was getting my teacher's training, and somewhere I ran across the saying that the only bad question is the question you don't ask. Anybody ever heard a teacher say that? I said that a few times as I was a teacher. I quickly gave that up because I found out that there were other bad questions besides the ones that weren't asked. There's some truth to it, but today we're going to look at a terrible question that's in the Bible, okay? So instead of listening to 1 John chapter 4 again, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 78. And if you, if you have a, an app or if you have a Bible with you, and you'd like to follow along. Psalm 78 is a pretty lengthy psalm. I'm just going to be reading part of that. I'm going to start at verse 9, and I'm going to read uh, through verse 20. So Psalm 78 uh, says, The Ephraimites, which is just another word for, for Israel, the Jewish people, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? If you look at the beginning of Psalm 78, Excuse me here, allergy season. Uh, beginning of Psalm 78, you'll see that it was written by somebody named Asaph. Asaph was, uh, we see other places in Scripture, was a choir director for David. So when King David was reigning in Jerusalem, Asaph was one of his worship leaders for uh, the worship in the, at the tabernacle. And it was, uh, it's, it's called a maskil. Uh, people aren't really sure what that word means completely, but it has the idea of some words to make you wise, to learn lessons. And quite often the words, that are, uh, the psalms that are labeled maskels use lessons from history so that we might learn from history. So that's always been really uh, impressive to me as a former history teacher. The bad question is in verse 19. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Now we're going to look at that uh, a little slowly this morning um, because there's two words there that are really crucial to our understanding of what this passage is about. One of the first thing we want to look at is the idea of the wilderness or the desert, okay? Okay. Uh, the desert speaks of the harsh reality of life. Uh, I, I grew up in Nebraska, as I told you, and there was an 
a, a time in the history of America when uh, the Louisiana Purchase was still going to be explored, and they referred to that area of Nebraska and Kansas and uh, the Dakotas as the Great American Desert. And I grew up in Nebraska, and it never seemed real desert-like to me. If you're driving across Nebraska to get to Colorado, it seemed to be very long. I understand that. But uh, that was not the kind of desert the people in Israel thought about. They thought of the Arabian Desert uh, to their east, to the Sinai Peninsula down south of them. That was desert. And they still had a lot of very desolate places within their, within their area as well. For them, the desert was an ever-present reality. And so they grew up with the desert. The desert was a connotation that people understood, which we might not understand right away coming from a very fertile area like this. When we lived in Belgium, as we learned Dutch or Flemish, we found out that they had a hundred words to describe rain and fog because they had a lot of rain and fog in Northern Europe. And so when you read the, New, when the, read the Old Testament in Hebrew, they have a lot of different words for, for desert, because desert was always there. That was part of their psyche as a people, this idea of a, of a desert, a place that was desolate, that was waste, that was arid, that was parched, that was depopulated. And so this idea of the desert was not only the physical reality, but it also brought ideas into their mind as a people. The desert was a place of, was a place of testing. I think that goes back to their history where they uh, were coming out of Egypt and going to the promised land and they went to the desert, through the desert, and they wandered there for 40 years. And they were supposed to be learning what it meant to trust God, but they weren't always learning the lessons that they needed to learn in the desert. They were supposed to be depending on God, but they found that so difficult. And so the desert became a place of, of testing, a place for complaining, a place of saying, why don't we just go back to Egypt? Now, in a, in not in a literal sense, but I think in a, in a very real sense, We've been going through a desert here in this country and various places around the world for the last three years or so. Think of how everything kind of shut down and all the questions that we had uh, around COVID and the virus and all the things that uh, were difficult. And then the, the social unrest that went along with that. And then a very contentious election and uh, maybe very personal hardships that you've had. As, as you've lost a job or uh, had to retool your life a little bit because of all the things that are going on. The desert speaks of a place of, of testing. Can we trust God? Desert also spoke of a place of dryness, physical dryness to be sure, but also spiritual dryness, dryness on the inside. So when the Jewish people thought of the desert, they thought of also of, of a dryness of soul being dried up on the inside. of uh, Maybe you've been there before, too. You feel dry inside. You've, you've lost your joy. The, the things that used to uh, interest you and grab your attention are no longer there. So the desert was a place of testing, a place of dryness, also a place of loneliness. That just stands for a reason. It's a very harsh environment physically, and so you would not run across a lot of people in the desert. You would feel isolated in the desert. You would feel alone. 
I was listening to uh, a radio report uh, when I was driving in the car uh, a few weeks ago, and there were some social scientists, some, uh, some sociologists and doctors that were saying, Americans right now are going through a second epidemic, no longer a virus, but an epidemic of loneliness as we've isolated ourselves, as we've stayed home from our jobs or perhaps, or we've uh, restricted our friendship circle and so on. And so there's this loneliness that many people are battling with. That's the idea of a desert. So testing, dryness, loneliness. Also, the desert was a place of fear. A, a desert is very unforgiving, a dangerous environment. And a place also where you know that you need direction need direction. Now, when Israel was going through the desert, God was leading them. Uh, God was leading them by day and by night and where they needed to go. But the desert, they, they could tell this is not a place where you want to get lost. This is not a place where you want to lose your way. Uh, the desert is a place where you need direction. One of the things that I've gone through lately uh, just because of my age, of you know, as I've moved into retirement, I've, uh, okay, now who's going to tell me how to live this phase of life, right? Or maybe you've got new children coming, or maybe you just have teenagers in your family now, or maybe you've had to change your job, or, or maybe you're looking at a relocation, okay? Where do, you, where do you go for direction for handling places like that? That's the, the desert times. So knowing what the desert is like, the question we might ask ourselves, why do we often find ourselves in a desert? Again, not a physical desert, but an emotional or spiritual desert. Sometimes, and this, the passage makes it clear, sometimes we're in the desert because of our own choices. Our own choices. Verse 9, they turned their back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. Verse 17, they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. You know, sometimes we go through those times in life where we feel like we're being tested, we feel dry inside, we feel lonely, we feel fearful, we know that we need direction. And if we stop and take a few minutes, we say, you know, I've been making some bad choices. I've been choosing to go my own way, to wander away from God. Sometimes we're in places that are difficult, where we lose our strength and our joy and our hope and, our discourage, and we're discouraged because we've made choices that have led us there. Okay, we'll come back to that in a little bit, but sometimes we're, we find ourselves in the desert because people around us make bad choices. You know, sometimes that happens, right? We have friends or family or, or co-workers that, that make bad choices, and it doesn't just affect them, it affects us as well. We find that we have to suffer with them because their choices impact our lives and uh, not everybody in Israel in the desert was unfaithful to God, but most of them were. And the decisions of most of the majority was having a negative impact on those people that wanted to remain faithful, like Joshua and Caleb. 
among others. So sometimes we find ourselves in the desert because of our own bad choices or the choices we others around us make, or sometimes we find ourselves in a desert time, a discouraging time, a hard time, a difficult time, simply because we live in a world that is not perfect. You know, what we see here today is not the way God designed life to work. What we see here today is a, is a twisting, is a perversion of what God intended life to be like. We live in a world that's fallen where sin is ever-present. And so, so people get sick and we, we have losses and there's, there's death and there's sadness. All of those things come to us at times and we find that we're, we're going into the desert right now. And so the question is, in those times when we're in the desert, can God bring something good can God spread a table? Can, can God guide us? Can God address our fears? Can he help us overcome our loneliness? Can he refresh us? Can he give us victory when we're being tested in the desert times? Interesting, at the very beginning of his ministry, what did Jesus do? Remember at his baptism? Where did he go? It says he was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. And as an equation, like Israel was in the desert for 40 years, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert, and he was going to demonstrate that God is able to provide for his faithful people even in the most difficult of circumstances. So Jesus went into the desert. He gave up everything, and he found that even then, God was sufficient. His Father took care of him. So, I, I don't know where you're at. I know where I'm at. And we've been going through some difficult times lately and going through a bit of a desert. And we've had disappointments. We feel lost at times and isolated and overwhelmed and dry inside and the desert can be very real, can't it? It can be very real. Well, the second part of that question is relationship to the table. Can God spread a table in the desert or in the wilderness? Think for a minute, uh, leave the desert and think about something happier, okay? Think about Thanksgiving. Yeah, everybody likes Thanksgiving. You all have your own traditions, your foods you like to eat and so on. And, uh, or think about Christmas. Think about the, the smells of Christmas and the, and the great food that's, that's laid out on the table as the family comes together. Or, or maybe a wedding reception or a graduation celebration or something like that. Think about a table that's loaded with food and you see those things and you can smell those things and taste those things. Well, the Jewish people, they had different holidays than what we have, of course, but they, they knew what that was all about. They had their feast days, they had their holy days, their, their harvest festivals, and they could look to this idea of a table and say, oh, that speaks so deeply to us, the idea of a table. And so this idea had a lot of different connotations for the Jewish people. The table for them could have just been a, an animal hide on the ground, like a picnic blanket, okay? 
that, that would have been classified as a table, or they would have had a table in their home probably. Or if they went up to the tabernacle or up to the temple later on, they'd find that there was a, a table there as well in that holy place. And so the table brought all these different ideas to mind for the Jewish people. Is The table was a place of provision. The table was a place where food was laid out, where the bounty was spread, where needs were met. And we all know that idea of coming to a table and enjoying and just relaxing and sitting down and enjoying what's been provided. I grew up in Nebraska, as I said, and I grew up in a very, uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, which was a bigger place, but uh, we lived in a, a place where we lived, we went to a very small church. And my parents were always very hospitable. They always had people over for church uh, lunch or for lunch after church on, on Sunday. And in fact, I suppose out of the 52 Sundays out of the year, I would hazard a guess that there was probably 47 or 48 Sundays out of the year that we had people over to eat with us. Sometimes they were university students, didn't have any place else to go. Sometimes they were, uh, there was an Air Force base in Lincoln, Nebraska for a year. And so my dad would drive out to the Air Force base and pick up three or four cadets and bring them back in. They'd go to church with us. We'd have a meal together. One of them married my oldest sister. He kind of stuck around for a long time. Uh, you know, and it was just, uh, we always had people there. And there was something, something about that sitting down at the Sunday dinner together with, with people. Uh, my mom would provide. We didn't have a lot of creativity in what we ate. It was every Sunday, it was roast beef, mashed potatoes, gravy, homemade rolls, uh, either corn or beans, and uh, some kind of salad. Usually jello, because that was back in the 60s, right? And the jello would kind of melt on your plates and s spread into everything else. It was not, uh, not all that attractive when I look back on it, okay? <laughs> but there was always plenty of food. There's always plenty of food. The table is a place of provision. The table was also something else. It was a table is a place of, uh, of community or a place of fellowship, a place where you could gather around, where you could welcome other people, and you'd, you'd share food together. You'd share your lives together. Because Lynn and I, because our, our, our roots and to some degree are still back in Nebraska, Lynn at least still has family back there, uh, we were always away from family at, at holidays, especially when we were in Belgium, of course. You couldn't come back for Thanksgiving or, or Christmas even at that, for that matter at that time. But we've always been living over here for the last 20, 25 years and uh, you know, it's 450 miles, seven or eight hour drive to get to Nebraska. And we, you just couldn't do that all the time, okay? So when we had holidays or things like that, we'd always find other people that were separated from their family too. And we'd have some of them over and we'd share a meal together, okay? Because that's what the table's about. The table's about community. It's about fellowship, about bringing other people in. Table also had the idea of acceptance to the Jewish people. It was a place, if you went to somebody's table, you were, you were included, you were made to feel at home. I was going through uh, a box of stuff that my parents had, 
had kept uh, several weeks ago, and I found an old letter that Bill Hibbs wrote to my mom and dad. Now, Bill Hibbs was a, a young man who had come into Lincoln, Nebraska. At that time, they had a job corps facility there where they tried to give training, job training to young men from disadvantaged homes, uh, different places around the country. They'd have different centers located around the nation. And my dad got to know some of those guys, and so they were some of our Sunday guests for a number of uh, months as they were in Lincoln as well. And Bill Hibbs wrote this incredibly honest and transparent letter to my parents. He says, I grew up in a very difficult situation in West Virginia. I've done some things that I don't want to tell anybody about. He says, but you accepted me. You've accepted me. You've welcomed me into your home. And that's what the table does. It speaks acceptance. It speaks acceptance. It speaks community. It speaks provision. That's what the table meant to the Jewish people. And so most people then, at that time, and most people now have a table and they can provide and they can have fellowship, they can accept others. And, and so it's no surprise, it shouldn't surprise us that God has a table too. Because God likes to provide. God wants to have community with people like us. God wants to communicate his acceptance to us. So even in the desert, in the worst of times in their history, when the people were making choices that were separating them from God, God gave instructions to Moses. He says, I want you to build a tabernacle. And he says, one of the things that has to go in the tabernacle is what? Is a table. It's a table. Because I want you to know that even though you are going through a difficult time here in the desert, even though it's some of your own choices or the choices of other people that have you here right now, I want you to know that there's always provision through me. There's always acceptance that is there. There's always an openness to community with me. So the question was, can God spread a table in the wilderness? But there's actually more to it than that. Let me just refresh your memory. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Their question was not so much a question as it was an accusation. They were saying, in other words, we think that God cannot provide for us, that God does not want to have fellowship or community with us, that God cannot and will not accept us and will not protect us in those times when we are being tested or we're dry or lonely 
or fearful in need guidance. For 40 years, the nation doubted God. Why? Verse 11 said, they forgot. They forgot. They forgot his works. And it goes on in verses 11 through 16. It says, all that God had done for them, how he had done miracles and provided for them and led them and uh, provided them with, uh, with water and food and all the things that they needed. But it says they spoke against God. So their question is actually an accusation. And it, it should have been clear to them as it should be clear to us. It says they were speaking against God when they asked that question. God has many different names in the Bible. This is the name Elohim, okay? It speaks of God as being the strong one, the God who's created everything, the God who, who has all things under his control, the, the God who, there's nothing that he cannot do. And they're saying, can that God do this? No, they say, we don't think so. And they go down a little bit later in verse 21. It says, therefore, when the Lord heard, he was angry. It says, so it was not only God Elohim that they were accusing, it was the Lord Jehovah. And these people knew. These people knew about Abraham, and they knew about how God asked uh, Abraham to sacrifice his own son. And at the last minute, God says, wait a minute, don't do it. There's a, there's a ram there. Sacrifice that ram instead of your own son. And Abraham said, you are Jehovah Jireh. You are the God who provides at all times. So they're not believing that anymore. They're saying, will God do this? I don't know. Maybe God doesn't provide anymore. And they were also speaking against God's word. I don't know exactly the chronology of how this all happened. I do know that Asaph was a choir director for David. And I do know that David wrote that great and memorable psalm that we all probably have heard of and can recite some of. Where David says in Psalm 23, he says, The Lord provides a table before mine enemies. He said, this is what God does in the most difficult situations imaginable in life. God is there. He provides. He gives. He protects. He supports. He encourages. He gives us his presence. He does all these things in the most difficult times that we go through. Can God spread a table in the desert? After the last three years, some people are wondering. The suicide rate in this country is off the charts. People don't know what to do. The depression rates, people that are clinically depressed, there are not enough psychiatrists and psychologists and counselors to address the issues that people are facing. And so many people are saying, God is not there. He can't help us in this situation. So let me ask us a question. 
Can God still spread a table? Can he still provide? Can he still accept us in the community? Can he still communicate that we have been accepted when we are going through the most difficult times of our life? The problem with the people of Israel was they forgot. If they remembered, they would remember, oh yes, God is able to do all those things because he's done them in the past. And so God has given us a way to remember. Last night that Jesus had with his disciples, he says, look, he said, here's some bread. He says, I want you to understand that this is my body that's given for you. Okay? I am providing for you. He says, and I won't eat it again until I eat with you in the, in the kingdom of God. And they said, there's going to be a time when all this is going to be done away with, when things are going to be set right. But right now, he says, he says, I want you to remember. I want you to come to the table and remember. Remember that all that I've given you through Jesus Christ. If you're in a difficult place right now, that's what I'm asking you to do, is to remember. Remember how God has helped you in the past. Remember what, what God has given us through Jesus Christ. Remember as we come to take communion together that this is God's provision. God does provide in the desert because he has a table that he invites us to come to wherever we're at, wherever we're going through. Father, I pray. I pray that as we take this time together this morning to remember when it's so easy to forget. Father, help us to remember when we're discouraged. Help us to remember when we feel alone. Help us to remember that uh, in all those times that are difficult, that are desert-type experiences for us, you have given all that we need through Jesus Christ. I pray that our time of remembering this morning would be sweet and would be touching our hearts with the truth of the gospel. Because Jesus has paid it all. All to him that we owe. The, it was our sin that left a stain, but he's washed us white as snow. We thank you for that. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. We're going to move into a time of communion this morning. Um, thanks, Tom, for the message. A great transition into communion to examine our hearts. Um, here at Cross Point, we do practice open communion. Um, if you don't have to be a member at Cross Point to take communion, but we do ask that you know you do need to be a believer in Christ um, and uh, someone who's put their faith and trust in, in Jesus. So, um, with that, we'll uh, ask the first impressions to hand out the elements, and then we'll uh, have a time of prayer, and then uh, we'll go ahead and do communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And he had given thanks. 
He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and drink the cup. Father God, we thank you for... God, how you provided, Lord, Lord, you provided ultimately for uh, the atoning sacrifice and plan of salvation of your son, Jesus. Lord, um, that took the penalty uh, for us. Lord, that was an, a, the perfect atoning sacrifice. God, that, um, that it didn't only end there, Lord, that you rose three days later. And um, Lord, that we... Um, rose to life as believers as well. And we thank you for how you regenerate hearts, Lord. We thank you for the new life given, Lord, as new creations in you through the work and uh, of the cross. God, may we be reminded of the penalty and sacrifice that was made for us. And may we be and continue to live empowered by your spirit. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close this morning, I'm going to read from John 16:33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, I have in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, as we depart from this building and, and we go on mission this week, um, God would give us the power, and He is, you know, through His Spirit to, to live for Him. And may we take heart knowing that he has overcome the world. So pray that you would seek him out throughout the week and uh, just uh, come to him in prayer and dependence.